I'm Susan Wise Bauer, co-author of The Well-Trained Mind. And I'm Susanna Jarrett, editor at The Well-Trained Mind Press. And we're talking about education for all parents and for all children in all sorts of settings. And today we're going to be discussing developing virtue through a classical education. One of the things that sets a classical education apart from more traditional education philosophies is that it strives to develop the whole person, kind of like uh, the Montessori approach or the Charlotte Mason approach, which we talked about in our last episode. Go listen to that if you haven't heard it. It was a really good episode. Right. So beyond just the academic skills, a classical education endeavors to develop virtuous and moral human beings. And I know before we get started going stage stage by stage with how that what that looks like, you have some thoughts about developing virtue in children. I do. I do. I, I mean, developing virtue, and we're going to talk about the, the four sort of cardinal virtues that come from the classical tradition. They're actually originated with Plato and Cicero, and then the, in in uh, Western culture, they were sort of a the, they were diffused through Thomas Aquinas. So we're going to talk about that, but right. but 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 I have this instinctive revulsion. Okay, I'll just say this up front mm. to the whole idea of teaching virtue. I I don't know if do you remember the book of virtues by William Bennett? Yes, where that was like going to be sort of a big thing where we're going to teach children how to be moral and virtuous, and then it was discovered that he was dropping like zillions of dollars on gambling and oh no and yeah i mean it was just that that to me was just sort of emblematic of this whole problem of we're going to teach people to be virtuous so right. when we start talking about teaching virtue i just have this like blah reaction mm-hmm. and i've tried to break this down so that i can be more articulate about it than just saying blah which is my immediate right. reaction and i really think it has to do with how impossible it is to make a child virtuous. Mm. I don't think that you can teach virtue to a child any more than you can teach love or you can Mm. teach. And I say this to parents a lot, any more than you can teach a love of learning. I get asked that Mm. question a lot. How can I teach my child a love of learning? And I always say the same thing, which is you can't teach a virtue, what you can do is you can create a space within which Mm -hmm. the child can choose that virtue Mm. and find it good. But the choice of the virtue itself has got to be up to the child. I mean, I grew up in a very, um, a very, how should I put this? My family was not controlling. My family was loving and well-intentioned and doing the best that they could. But I grew up in an environment where the church and our educators around us were teaching that it was incredibly important to control children, Mm, to make them do what you wanted them to do. It was, and I remember this specifically when my youngest was born, somebody from this church telling me that Not the church my husband pastored, by the way. So I just would like Mm -hmm. to make that clear Um, (laughs) that the first time that you change the baby's diaper and the baby stiffens up and yells, that's the beginning of teenage rebellion. And you've got to get on that way and smack that baby on the butt and let them know that that is not acceptable. So this very controlling, fear based way of teaching children to be good. Mm -hmm. And so when I hear when I hear like, you know 
teaching virtues, that's the first thing that comes to mind is a virtue is an internal thing between the child Mm -hmm. and God, or, you know, depending on your perspective, the child and their inner moral development. It is not something you can impose from the outside. Right. And it's, you know, I have seven siblings and I know families with many siblings and you can see lots of different human beings raised by the same parents, raised with the same rules and a very similar environment. And they don't turn into identical people. That's just, you know, in in some ways, the child that you get, receive, or if you're not religious, just have is, (laughs) it's a bit out of your control, but you can, I like what you said about creating an environment, Mm -hmm. you know, where they can practice these things and give them the best chance that they have, you know, to develop good character traits and habits. Um, But it's not completely in your control. And I think that takes a lot of pressure off parents too. I I think I would, I would even say it more strongly than that. It is, Mm -hmm. it is not entirely, but mostly out of your control. Mm. Uh, This, I think, also comes from now my experience of having my children be adults because now they're Mm -hmm. 31, 29, 26, 22. Mm -hmm. I've watched them and um, I can see that there are certain aspects of their personalities that did develop in response to spaces that we opened for those personality traits to develop. But every single one of those grown people has made their own choice. And I don't think I had a whole lot to do with the choices they made. It was an internal aspect. Once they get to be grownups, and Susanna, you and I have talked about this, Mm -hmm. you can make a six-year-old more or less do what you want. Right. If you make them scared enough of the consequences. Right. But that sort of fear-based compulsion only lasts so long. Right. They have to commit to the virtue themselves freely by their own choice or else it isn't going to be part of their lives. Right. As adults, that makes sense. And even as a child, I remember feeling like, you know, my virtues were my own, not my parents. And I would get frustrated if I was sitting and behaving as a six or seven year old and adults would come to my parents and say, oh, wow, your children are so well behaved. How did you do it? Mm -hmm. I remember sitting there thinking, hello, I'm right here. I'm the one who had to sit still for 30 minutes. Like, do I get any credit for this? I love that story. (laughs) So it it can be frustrating for kids, too, if if adults are talking like they're not in the room. It's it's always good for us to try to remember what it's like to be six years old, right? Right. Okay. Right. So, so those are lots of caveats mm-hmm. before we start talking about this. Exactly. But with those caveats in mind, let's look at the four cardinal virtues, which are the staple of classical education. And these are temperance, prudence, courage, and justice. Yes. And we'll go through this stage by stage because children develop and become mature enough to understand and kind of display these different virtues at different times. Mm -hmm. A young child doesn't have the maturity and the brain development and the experience to display justice. Or prudence. Or prudence. (laughs) We we all know our six-year-olds, right? No, they're they're not very prudent. Exactly. But they are able to start displaying the virtue of temperance. So let's start there with temperance and the grammar stage. Yeah, I think in the in the United States, because of the temperance movement, as soon as we hear temperance, we think booze, you know. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> right. Um, but what temperance is, and there's sort of two different angles that we can look at temperance. Temperance is restraint, but not restraint as in, I will force myself not to do this. Mm. It's the practice of self-control. So self-control is the ability to do something 
that is not immediately pleasurable or rewarding Mm -hmm. because there is going to be a future payoff. There's going to be a future benefit. There's going to be future gain that will come from that. So self-control, I guess, is the opposite of Mm self-indulgence. Self-indulgence means I'm going to do whatever feels good in the moment and I don't care what happens next. Right. Self-control says I'm going to do what I need to do. I will do my duty. I will do the necessary thing in the moment, not because I'm a masochist and not because I enjoy suffering, but because I know there's a payoff down the road. And the thing to remember about that payoff down the road is that's that's very delayed gratification. Right. right? So if if we look at something as simple as practicing the, the times tables, mm-hmm. unless you just, you know, like shouting things, which some people do, there's not much. I mean, it's just not that interesting to just, you know, go through and review all of the times tables. Right. You're not doing it because it's fun. You're doing it because you trust, because your parent or teacher told you so, right. that it's going to make math more enjoyable down the road. Right. So the ability to do that in the moment for the sake of a future reward is temperance. That's restraint, mm-hmm. that's self-control. And what that develops is maturity, because Mm -hmm. that is actually the definition of maturity is being able to put off immediate Mm. pleasure for future gain. Right. And there are studies that show that delayed gratification is associated with success in the future when you see delayed gratification in children. So it's a great thing to help them to practice. There's, Mm -hmm. there are fun experiments, there's social experiments from the 1960s. So I don't know how super valid they are. You know, we have the replication crisis and whatever, but they still make for really cute YouTube videos where they put (laughs) young children and they give them like one marshmallow and they leave the room and they say, if you don't eat the marshmallow, you can have two when I get back. And maybe we can put a link to that in the show notes. Yes, they are fun can, to watch. They are super cute to watch. And you just see the little kids, especially if there's two of them, they can just look at each other and they're communicating so much without saying anything. And according to this study done in the 60s, of course, you have to take that with a grain of salt. The children who were able to wait went on to show more discernment and have you know higher grades and all kinds of other ways that they measured success later on. But um, but that delayed gratification is such an important skill to start helping them to practice as kids. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the reason why we're talking about this first is because this is the first of the virtues that they have to develop. Mm. Young children by the fact that they're immature don't necessarily have the immediate ability to do something for future gain. Right. They're, they're, they're you know, they're constitutionally short-sighted because they're children. So when we teach them that they need to do this, even though it's not immediately pleasurable, because it's going to pay off in the future, Mm -hmm. we are developing temperance in them. And it's Mm -hmm. the first and most basic virtue that they have to develop in order to continue to mature. Right. And I have a question about this because it seems to me that throughout the school day, they would have so many opportunities to practice this. But mm-hmm. when we talk about developing virtue, are you naming it for them? Are you saying you need to be prudent? You need delayed gratification? Or are you just kind of doing it without giving them the name for it? Well, in my opinion, and, and this is definitely a judgment call, so you right. may differ. Your mileage may vary. Um, I think naming a virtue turns it into something external, mm-hmm. like a trick. Or, you know, a a skill that's going to get you through the day. So I personally 
wouldn't Mm -hmm. spend much time trying to name the virtue, I would emphasize what is central to it, which is this is how you this is how you develop into an adult who can enjoy what they're learning. Right. Master what they're learning. You've just got to get through. You know, you've got to Mm -hmm. do these times tables now. You do need to do your scales. You need to go practice Mm -hmm. your piano for 20 minutes a day. I know you don't love it. You know, let's do the hard stuff first so that then Mm -hmm. you can do the things that you enjoy. That is teaching temperance without having to sort of be heavy handed and naming it. Right. And I feel like, you know, in one way, you're you're creating a vision for them of like, this is the why. And then you're also helping them hold to it because they're young and Mm -hmm. the vision may or may not uh, be enough at that age. Yeah. One thing that my dad always said, and I felt like it was it wasn't really naming it, but it was helpful for me is he always would just say first things first. So it was Mm -hmm. just like a little phrase that he used to, you know, you haven't made your bed yet. So it's not time for you to be playing a game or whatever. And sometimes I still hear that in my head of like, okay, first things first, let me go make the bed and make breakfast and then I'll read my book or whatever it is I want to do. Yeah. And you know what? I would add to that also, I would not be at all afraid to use external rewards Mm -hmm. to emphasize this. You know, if you're dealing with your six-year-old, your seven-year-old, your eight-year-old, look, you've got it. You've got to practice your piano for 20 minutes and Mm -hmm. then you can have have some chocolate chips before we go on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. That is simply... Remember, we're talking about grammar stage, okay? Right. And if you haven't heard about all the stages of classical education, go back and listen to that podcast. That was right. a great one. In the grammar stage, they're very um, concrete thinkers, right? Mm-hmm. Abstraction is difficult for them. And to think about a future reward some years off is like the definition of an abstraction for mm-hmm. a young child. There is absolutely no reason to avoid saying, okay, 20 minutes, then you can have a Snickers bar. Right. Um, That is not in any way short circuiting Mm -hmm. the development of temperaments. It's teaching them in a really concrete way. Right. That if they do the difficult task, there will be a reward, not immediately, but when the task is finished. And I think that's a great teaching technique myself. Right. And and not only are they concrete thinkers, but they're just absorbing so much about how life works from how their life, which is sort of in some ways controlled by you works. My husband tells the story of how when he was really little, he he would get 25 cents every time he took out the trash Mm -hmm. and he saved up his 25 cents for a very long time uh, for, I think a six or seven year old was what he was to buy a video game that he really wanted. He went to the store and he bought the video game. And when he brought it home, his mom saw it and it was a video game a six or seven year old really should not be playing so she threw it out and all of his 25 cents were gone oh no and i mean he had been in a in a, in a six-year-old's mind he'd been saving forever and he said that his whole really, life really right he that really set him back from wanting to save for a long time so just creating these memories in their minds of oh i waited and i got something for it you know mm-hmm. can have a big impact at them when they're so young and absorbed And I think that's just a great example of, in a negative way, unfortunately, but of how we can open a space for the virtue to develop without trying to impose the virtue from the outside. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Your poor husband. Such a sad story. (laughs) It was sad. Okay, so that's temperance. And and look, it's not it's not as if, you know, grades one through four, they develop temperance on to the next thing. Right. This is something we all continue to, you know, struggle with and develop our entire lives. It's just that the grammar stage is such a great place to introduce it and to give, you know, give kids a vision for how rewarding 
self-control and self-restraint can be. Right. Now, when we talked about the stages of classical education, we talked about the difference between the grammar and the logic stage. As the kids move into the logic stage, one of the things that really distinguishes that is the ability to look at cause and effect. Mm. And the reason why they can look at cause and effect is because they have lived long enough. They have seen patterns repeat enough times to be able to recognize patterns and to be able to predict. You Mm. can't move into logic or critical thinking without the ability to predict. The ability to predict comes from life experience, right? having some idea of what might happen next. That brings us to prudence. Prudence is the ability to discern the appropriate course of action for a given situation. And where do you think that ability develops? From seeing situations. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why it is not something that elementary students come equipped with. Right. And they don't know what to do next. They haven't, they haven't seen enough examples yet. Mm, They haven't, I've, I've heard you say before, they haven't gone around the sun enough times. They just don't (laughs) have those patterns in their brains yet. Yeah. That's interesting. So I wonder if one way that children are developing prudence in some ways is just by looking at examples of how adults handle things. Mm -hmm. Oh, we can model prudence. (laughs) We can also, we can model prudence by being, I think, a lot more articulate than we tend to be around children. Mm. When we have a decision to make, and, you know, maybe it's something that we think to ourselves, I don't even know if this is appropriate. Like, you know, we're having a conflict with another adult. I think we are too reluctant to share our thought process with our children. That's really you know, interesting. This person um, keeps or this, you know, say it's another homeschool mom. We'll mm-hmm. stick with homeschool moms for a minute. Keeps dropping by unannounced. Mm-hmm. And when she drops by unannounced, I really like her and I like her kids, but it throws our whole routine off. And I want to be sure to tell her that she needs to contact me first, but I don't want to offend her. So let me think about how I can tell her that I treasure her friendship, but also express to her how disruptive it is when we have to stop everything for half an hour because she and her children are suddenly on the front doorstep. A lot of times I think we have this monologue internally. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to be better about sharing our decision making with our children. We've talked about this a lot, but Classical education is so much about modeling, mm-hmm. giving an example. Right. And one of the ways in which you can help children discern the appropriate course of action for the given situation, which is prudence, is to, you know, give them a little bit of a window into how you discern an appropriate course of action for a given situation. But I think then also asking them questions. If they're, say, they're having a conflict with a friend, Mm -hmm. say, have you ever had this this kind of thing happen before? Right. Do you know anyone else who's had this kind of problem? What did they do? What happened? The focus in prudence is on helping them to look at past situations and then extrapolate into their current situation. Right. And so in, in some ways, you might have to stop yourself from just telling them what to do, especially as they're getting a little bit older, you know, when they they come to you for advice or my friend said something mean or my friend did something I don't like, you know, asking those questions that you just mentioned, you know, what have you done before? What do you think you should do? What feels right? How would that make them feel if you did that? Kind of guiding them to think it through on their own versus saying, oh, I'll I'll call their mom and we'll figure it out, you know? Oh, yes. Which is often our first 
impulse. Right. Because we want to protect them and we, and we want to, you know, make sure they're okay. And, but I think just as they get older, being able to stop ourselves and allow them to practice, um, practice these conflicts, practice coming up with, even sometimes my parents would, would ask me like, what do you think is the right consequence? If I, I if I broke a rule, they would help. I would be part of, you know, what do I do now to, to kind of make it right. And, um, giving the children the window at first, but also the opportunity to make their own decisions. And you know what? It strikes me too. And this is something you've brought up, Susanna, that Mm -hmm. this is a great place for literature to play a part in the development of a virtue. Anyone who's, who's listened to me talk about the teaching of literature and the teaching of writing will know that I am not a huge fan of asking very young children why questions about literature. Why did this character do what they do? What should they have done instead? Mm -hmm. Because, and unfortunately that's a really common teaching technique in a lot of elementary literary literature and writing programs. My, My objection has always been that they don't know. I mean, they don't know why they do things. They really don't know why a fictional character does something. Mm -hmm. Um, They just don't have the life experience. But once kids move into that logic stage, once they move into that middle grade area, Mm -hmm. they have enough life experience to at least begin to ask those questions. So it can be the development of prudence can really, you know, uh, this is another space that we can open for that to to happen. If we say, why did this character make that decision? Was that a good decision or a bad decision? Did it have good consequences or bad consequences? What could they have done instead? And, you know, although that's a literary discussion, Mm -hmm. it is very much a space for virtues discussion. Right. That's so true. And talk about patterns and, and, and young children needing more examples of you do this and then this happens. I mean, the more mm-hmm. stories they read, the more they see how humans interact and what happens when you don't treat someone right and what happens when you do this or that. They have all these examples. And one of the things I love about great literature is they're also seeing people, human beings who are flawed, but learning a lesson. You know, the core of many stories is this is the character learning a lesson they needed to learn. And so getting to see that is so great for them because, and I don't want to go too far off track, but Philip Zimbardo has been thinking about kind of the psychology of not just evil, but of heroism. And one of the things he talks about is when kids read books, they are developing this imagination of, oh, that's what I would do if I was in that part of history, or that's what I, that's the side of history I would want to be on, or that's, that's the character I would want to be in the movie or the story. And so having discussions with your kids about what they're reading or what they're watching can be a great way for them to develop that imagination of like, oh, that's what I would want to do if something went wrong or if, or if I was put in that situation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this could take place on a more advanced level. You know, mm-hmm. if the kids are reading The Lord of the Rings or, mm-hmm. you know, they're reading Dickens or something. You know, there's lots of really complex characters. But even, I mean, fairy tales right. demonstrate virtue all of the time. Fairy tales and folk tales. I mean, even mm-hmm. like Beatrix Potter, mm-hmm. Peter Rabbit loses all the buttons off his coat. And Mopsy, Flopsy and Cottontail have milk and blackberries for dinner. You know, it's just this very clear bad choice, Mm -hmm. good choice. You know, it is sort of a study in prudence. What happens to the bunnies in Beatrix Potter? So maybe it's just something that we as parents try to sort of keep our ears open for Mm -hmm. and just ask the question. Don't beat it to death. Right. And don't say, what is the prudent thing to do? But just (laughs) ask the question. Right. Was was that a good choice? What did it lead to? What, What could another choice have been? Right. And we'll be right back. 
Do you wish there was somewhere you could go to find the cream of the crop homeschool resources for every subject and grade level? Well, now there is. We are excited to announce the Well-Trained Mind Recommendations Portal. For years, parents and educators have looked to print editions of The Well-Trained Mind by Jesse Wise and Susan Wise Bauer for its trusted book lists and curricula suggestions. Now we have pulled those suggestions out of the print book and put them online so that you can continuously access the most up-to-date recommendations for the highest quality homeschool resources. This curated list can help you simplify and supercharge your homeschool planning. For a limited time, we are offering one-year access for just $12.99. So don't wait. Subscribe today at welltrainedmind.com. Yeah. So then I guess related, is it, this is actually related to prudence, mm-hmm. is courage, which is the other virtue that I think really comes into play in those middle grade years. So prudence is when a student thinks about the right choice and what the consequences will be from that choice. Courage is when a student has to move forward without knowing mm. what the outcome is going to be. Something bad could happen here. You know, right. and I, I know one of the things you'd mentioned, Susanna, was speech and debate and performance, mm-hmm. which is like, I, I never understood this because I love to talk. In right. People, but, you know, this is one of the great fears that adults have is public speaking. Right. So prudence is I'm going to prepare. I'm going to be as well prepared as I possibly can mm. and in whatever form that takes. But courage is I don't know how this audience is going to respond because mm-hmm. you can't know that. Right. They might laugh at me. Mm -hmm. They might sit there and stare at me in silence, which as a public speaker, I'll tell you, is worse. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But despite the fact that I don't know what's going to happen, I'm going to move forward anyway. Mm. That's such a great example to show how those two virtues go so closely together. First, you prepare. You don't just walk into a speech because you're courageous and you haven't written any notes or thought about it. First, you prepare. But then despite the fears you do something scary or you do something unknown. Well, and I think a big part of courage there, and that this is why it's not an elementary virtue. It's <laughs> it's something that, again, we work on for the rest of our lives, is prudence, prudence kicks in when we have some control over the outcome. Courage kicks in when we recognize that we don't. Right. But we decide to move ahead anyway. That makes sense. And what would be some examples of ways that you can create an environment where students can practice courage naturally without beating them over the head with Mm -hmm. it throughout the school day or throughout their just regular life? Well, I think from a from a parent perspective, a lot of this has to do with opening up a space within which it's safe for the child to fail. Mm. Because generally speaking, you have to exercise courage when failure or hurt is a possible outcome. And you have to be able to normalize that Mm -hmm. for a kid. You know, you might not get a good grade. I know that doesn't seem like it needs courage, but if you're in a high achieving family, mm-hmm. it, it takes courage to say, I might not get a good grade on this. Right. You might get a reaction from other people that's painful. You know, you might feel put down. You might feel disregarded. You might feel laughed at. Okay, well, what happens then? 
see, we're back to prudence again. Right. What happens if that? Well, nothing. I still love you. We're still going to have chicken for Mm -hmm. dinner Mm -hmm. and watch the Muppets or whatever it is you do. Nothing will have shifted. Nothing will have changed. This is not, you know, a life threatening situation. So I think just normalizing risk and that means normalizing failure has to be a really big part of giving our kids that space within which to develop courage. I love that. Yeah, it makes sense. And at that age, the kind of middle school logic stage years, they may be ready to try something new. They may be ready to try a new instrument or try a sport or join, you know, a musical theater production. And those things are scary. But if they feel safe at home, safe knowing that when they make mistakes, mom and dad are there to, you know, just encourage them to keep trying, then trying new things and being bad at things isn't as isn't as much of a hurdle because they have that support behind them. And I think that the middle grades, middle grade is a time when they are becoming much more um, aware of the reactions of other people. Yes. Much more attuned to it. And I, I just think we've got to recognize the extent to which courage means you know that other people are having a certain reaction to you, but mm-hmm. you choose for it not to change what you do. Right. Um, I, I think a lot of us didn't learn this in middle school. We had to learn it as adults. Mm-hmm. But middle school is a great, great time to put that into practice. Right. And and the littlest things. I mean, I, I taught middle school and just the smallest differences between the fact that you don't have the right brand of shoes and you have to Mm -hmm. go into school can be such a harrowing prospect Mm -hmm. um, for a middle schooler because like you said, they're just suddenly aware of who they are and where their place is and the social hierarchy or whatever it is. So it's a great time to think about encouraging courage. Charles Cooley classically called this the looking glass self Mm. where they reach the age where they see themselves in their friend's eyes. They don't see themselves as they are. Mm. So um, having a looking glass self is death to courage because you're always having to adjust uh, according to other people's expectations. And that's Mm -hmm. the opposite of a classical virtue. Classical virtue, this goes back to where we started. Mm -hmm. A classical virtue is something that comes from the inside, Mm. not, not externally. So... I think just there's just so many opportunities for us to open that space for middle schoolers to begin to develop courage. And again, they're going to keep developing it right. until they die. You know, it's not like the not like the development of the virtue happens here or not at all. But a lot of times I think we don't open up that space for middle grade students. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So that leads us to the final stage of the uh well, the final stage of a classical education, the rhetoric stage, mm-hmm. uh, and our final virtue, which is justice or Ugh. fairness and righteousness. Oh, and justice is such a such a complex and necessary virtue. So, justice or fairness or righteousness means that you can you can take what you've learned, we'll call it wisdom, and you can apply it to your relationships. Mm-hmm. Courage and prudence and temperance are all self-focused, not in Mm -hmm. a bad way, and in a really necessary way. Right. Um, We have to develop these things within ourselves, but virtue doesn't end with ourselves. Virtue ultimately has to do with how we interact with others in the world. So it's the ability to take what you know to be right and to act on it in your relationship with others. And, you know, the reason why this is 
in the classical pantheon, sort of mm-hmm. the last of the the virtues to be introduced, is because you have to have a really strong sense of self. You've got to have prudence, courage, temperance, and you have to know who you are. You have to have that before you can act rightly mm. towards others. And that's the reason why middle school is like the most unjust. <laughs> I can testify. <laughs> yes. Unfair and unrighteous phase right. of education. It's because these kids are still figuring themselves out. I'm all for making sure that, you know, middle school kids are kind to each other insofar mm-hmm. as we possibly can, but they just don't have the maturity to act mm-hmm. with justice because they're still mm-hmm. trying to figure themselves out. Right. That makes sense. And what I love about this in the context of a classical education is justice brings it all together. You know, it's this ability to, like you said, to apply wisdom, to to act towards others rightly. And all this time in their academic work, they've been learning how to think clearly, how to organize their thoughts, how to evaluate information, how to eventually how to write their thoughts down. And now all of a sudden they can explain themselves clearly and they can talk to others and explain their reasoning and explain why they feel this is right in a way that as a middle school or elementary school student, they just wouldn't have the skills to. So the academic skills that they've developed over these years are complementing the virtues that they're developing. Absolutely. And you know, we've we've often said that the end goal of a classical education, academically speaking, mm-hmm. is to have a student who can find information, absorb it. That's the grammar stage understand it logically, critically, evaluate it, that's logic stage, and then have a well-articulated opinion Mm -hmm. about it. And all of those things, of course, from an academic perspective are true, but these virtues have been developed along with each one of those stages so that as a student gathers information, our goal is that they get into high school, they do something just with it. They do something mm, righteous with it. Right. They do something to make the world and to make relationships with other people stronger and better and righter. Mm. And that is, you know, I often quote when when I'm talking about a classical education, I quote from Aristotle's rhetoric where he says, this is the goal of a classical education. It is absurd to hold that a man should be ashamed of an inability to defend himself with his limbs, but not ashamed to be unable to defend himself with speech and reason for the use of rational speech is more distinctive of a human being than the use of his limbs. Right. But then this is from the book of wisdom that goes side by side with it. Wisdom reaches mightily from one end of the earth to the other, and she orders all things well. Her labors are virtues for she teaches self-control and prudence, justice and courage. Nothing in life is more profitable than these. So I think the big... The big challenge for us as parents and teachers is that it's a lot easier to teach rhetoric than it is Mm -hmm. to open a space for justice and righteousness. Mm. One of those things is very direct. The other takes a lot of patience and on our part, prudence and Mm -hmm. courage and justice to be able to open up that space and then to wait and have the faith that the virtue will develop. Mm -hmm. Giving a test is easy. Developing a virtue is much more out of our control right? than an academic goal. Right. That makes sense. But it also, it makes me think about how 
with the classical method, again, they're moving towards this point with preparation as much as you can open these different spaces that lead them to this place. Mm-hmm. As if you give a opinion essay to a 10 year old and say, you know, write about a cause that matters to you. They could maybe do a little research, but it's, it's almost a cheapening of the question because they they really don't have the maturity to have their own opinions. Their opinions at that time are mostly mom and dad's opinions. Agreed. And so to write an essay about, you know, I really care about climate change when they're seven. I mean, maybe they'll learn some things, but if you allow them to develop these virtues in this order and these skills, these writing skills and, and rhetoric skills in this order, then by the time they're high schoolers and, and you know, high schoolers, they love a cause, you know, they love to, to think about the world and making the world a better place. They then have the skills to start practicing. You know, I want to make this documentary about something that I care about, or I want to write an essay about something that matters to me, or I really, you know, I really want to volunteer here or do this, but they've developed the skills to be able to do it fully and properly with both their academic and um, character that they've developed over time. Agreed. Agreed. I really think it's important as we sort of wrap this discussion up here that I hope we've given parents some good ideas about how to open up a space for these virtues. Mm -hmm. But I just want to repeat once again that you can't make these virtues happen. Right. And I I feel like there's so much conversation about developing virtues in children that really binds guilt on the backs of parents and makes it sound as though we are responsible for this. I just want to emphasize again, your kids your kids are people. Right. <laughs> they're not little input output machines. They're people. And they're going to develop a sense of these virtues in different ways, in ways that you wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. at different times. It is our responsibility as parents to do everything we can to open up that space for those virtues to develop, but not to guarantee that they do, because right. that is just, you know, don't don't take on the responsibility for something that you can't possibly make happen. Right. That's such a great reminder. And with that, shall we virtue. close? <laughs> we talked about virtue. We talked we, about we, virtue. <laughs> we talked about virtue. I know. And, I, and in a way, I mean, I wanted to have this discussion, but I have kind of been not dreading exactly, but been a little apprehensive just because I, I feel so strongly. Right. You know, that it's not something you can teach like you teach the times tables or mm-hmm. the structure of a paragraph. It's it's a whole it's a whole different thing. And it takes courage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And justice on our parts. Um, So we get to exercise the virtues while we are making it possible for students to learn them. Right. So we have these these tips and tricks and things we can try, but we're not holding ourselves to being able to control the development of a human being because that would be too much for any human to put on them. Well, thank you all for listening. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you, your thoughts on classical education, home education, school education, or any kind of education that interests you. You can reach us at podcast at welltrainedmind.com. Hi, everyone. It's Susanna here with a quick end of podcast update. This was actually the final episode for season one. So thank you so much for joining us on the inaugural season of the Well-Trained Mind podcast. At this point, we're going to be taking a break for the holidays and we'll be back early next year, 2024, to share season two with you. We've got some fascinating topics and guests that we're lining up. So I can't wait to share more with you about that soon. 
In the meantime, be sure to stay up to date with our coming sales and promotions on our website, welltrainedmind.com. We are doing a big Cyber Monday sale on November 27th and 28th. That's the Monday and Tuesday right after Thanksgiving, where all of our digital products like our MP3s and PDFs will be discounted 40%. And then early next year, 2024, we'll be back sharing episodes of season two with you guys. I cannot wait. Stay tuned and have a wonderful holiday season. Bye-bye.